Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Stephen Zarlinga. He is the director and founder of the American Monetary Institute. He is also the author of a blockbuster book, The Lost Science of Money, The Mythology of Money, and The Story of Power. And he has created a monetary reform bill that Dennis Kucinich has introduced into Congress. And we're here to talk about monetary reform on a detailed level because it's so complex what's going on in the United States with the money system. And so many of us really don't understand why we're where we are monetarily. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Stephen Zarlinga to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim, and thank you for that nice, nice introduction. I would like to say I'm actually the co-founder of the American Monetary Institute, the other co-founders, a very interesting lady from uh, New York, uh, Dr. Lucienne DeWolf, and she was a critical element in uh, founding the Institute and in seeing to it that the work went forward. Uh, men don't do it all alone, you know. And the second thing, uh, regarding the uh, legislation that Congressman Kucinich has introduced last year, it is his legislation. He created it and uh I would suggest that to get a, an idea of it, they, that people can go to our website and read the first four pages, which are there, just the four pages. It's only 14 pages long compared to, you know, the thousands that uh, Congressman Frank and Senator Dodd put through the House and Senate. But it really does the job. Dennis has honored you by letting the public know that a lot of the principles that you put forth are in that bill. And so I think, at least from his presentation, that he's adopted a lot of your policy. You have to understand something. Uh, nobody tells congressmen or senators what to do, except maybe the very big donors. <laughs> and we're not <laughs> one of those. Uh, they have their own uh, view of things and their own rules and uh we're 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 very happy that Congressman Kucinich likes a lot of what we do. That's all I can say. But uh, he is his own man. You have to understand that. You make a very clear distinction between the money power, the power to create money, and the banking power. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that contextually. I can give you some background here. Uh, we're we're going to have a substantial amount of time. I can go into some of the background, which I think will be very, very helpful. My book, The Lost Science of Money, uh, is written largely from a historical point of view. The first 23 chapters give the, uh, the history and the case studies, which make it clear what money is and what has happened to it over, over the, the millennia, actually. It goes back, really, we start seriously with Aristotle and then go forward. Uh, I have been interviewed one time before by PBS, by uh, Ellen Chartalk, the king of Northeast Public Radio. You may know who he is. has about 30, 30 public stations up there in Northeast. And that's on our website as an iPod. In fact, we have about a dozen free iPods there that people can take a look at. And, and our, our website is at monetary.org. And, and all, your, all your listeners are, uh, are welcome to, to go there. The, the truth of the money power is that there's been a, uh, an ongoing battle, and we can trace it back at least to Aristotle, uh, 
a battle for the control of money in society. Who is going to control what we'll call the money power? Now, the money power, in brief, is the privilege or ability or power to create new money in a society or to strongly influence how money is created in a society. And um, it's been at the bottom of so many of the problems that society has. For example, at the present day, uh, the misuse of the money power by the banking system, uh, which has granted special privileges. They're granted the privilege to create money in in, um, our present system. And they abuse that to the point that they've endangered the entire civilized world. We had a, a situation where a couple of years ago it was heading down into total collapse uh, to a point where even those who are still employed would no longer be. That was a real threat there. And as usual, only action by government was able to save the situation. That's been a pretty constant feature in monetary history. The private control of money, which is what we have, brings the system to a collapse, and only with the government stepping in and rescuing the situation does it come back. Now, this is something that has been ignored. It's been ignored by really all, almost all economists. There are exceptions. Uh, it's been absolutely uh, ignored, in fact, uh, denied by such as the the uh, Austrian School of Economics, what you might call the, the conservative economics. But all economists share in the blame of the present system. What do you mean? What has been ignored exactly? What's been ignored is that private control over the money system always leads to disaster. There are some economists who have pointed that out. And then instead of actually attempting to fix the situation, to examine what it is that causes this uh, system to break down periodically, they propose, oh, well, then we can do this. We can have uh, uh, some palliative or another, which, uh, say, protects the unemployed temporarily. But they, they never will come forward with a real solution to fixing the system. Which is the ability to create money. The ability to create money is, for example, in our, in our present system, uh, the, the, uh, how does new money come into creation, come into existence? Now, the public think and are allowed to think or have been allowed to think until recently that, it was, that money is created by the government not the case. In our system, money is created, new money is created whenever the banks make loans. Now, people also have been allowed to think that the banks uh, get a deposit from one person and pay them uh, 3% interest and loan that money to another person and charge them 5% interest. That's what people think the system is, but that's not it at all. When a bank makes a loan, in essence, it's normally creating new money. Now, how can this happen? How can there be this much confusion? The confusion can exist because there are special interests that are deriving great power 
through control over the money system. Uh, to summarize it in one sentence, Kim, whoever controls the money power or the money system over time will control the society. Not every year, not every election, but over time, that's the way it will tend to work out. Therefore, this is such a huge question. It can supersede democracy. Don't you think it already has? Well, not completely. In elements, yes. What do you think? I mean, we, we, have, we see so much uh, power given to the, or held by those who are controlling the money. And this is, this is seen in several different ways. One is in the reduction of government to a type of uh, beggar status where the government doesn't have the funding to do the things that people expect from government. And then you get a, a kind of anger against why isn't this happening, why isn't that happening. They've been defunded. Uh, you, at the same time, you see an incredible concentration of wealth into the hands of just a few people. Uh, in fact, I'd call it an obscene concentration of wealth. And it's even worse because those who are getting that wealth haven't done anything productive. They haven't done anything real and creative uh, for humanity to get it. They, they become experts at manipulation, at uh, uh, a type of speculation, and their wealth has to be derived from the whole society. Uh, in other words, the society loses in order to generate those billions of dollars in profits for the uh, uh, some of the money managers are called uh, derivatives trading groups and so on. High-frequency trading as well. Oh, high-frequency trading. Yeah, these things should not be allowed. I agree. You do? Absolutely. Well, wonderful. I'm glad somebody's Absolutely. On the I've done a show on derivatives. I've done an entire segment on high-frequency trading called the quants about yep. how it's already systemically built in to the banking elite, it's already happening. It's built in. It's part of their infrastructure, You're right. which is so frightening. Absolutely. And it represents, if you think about it, that represents a type of class warfare that is built into the structure. Yep. Now, we don't want to even talk about class warfare. Everybody says, oh, you're, you're promoting class warfare. No, we're just recognizing it, what it amounts to. And it goes further than the derivatives traders. It goes further than that. It goes all the way into the, the, the themes and the so-called principles of economics. I can trace it all the way back to Adam Smith for you if you, if you want. I want you to do that, but I just want to go back to one thing. I want to be clear about new money coming into creation. Can you explain this to the audience? It's funny. I have G. Edward Griffin coming on to discuss the entire Federal Reserve tomorrow. But the thing is, when new money is created by loans, is that from the accounting system that the Federal Reserve uses about liabilities? Can you explain that? It's essentially an accounting privilege where there, it's what is known as fractional reserve banking where the banks can lend money or they will credit an account uh, out of thin air. They can create it out of thin air uh, on certain rules, depending on the reserve requirements. And even that is questioned whether or not uh, any reserve requirements are needed. 
we have materials from, and to explain this is a bit difficult because virtually no one really understands it. We have materials written by the uh, chairman of the Bank of England, governor of the Bank of England, which show that he doesn't understand how money is created <laughs> in, his, in his own system. So when people ask about this, you have to understand one of the greatest protections for the present immoral system is the difficulty in the language. Uh, the words that uh, banking uses sometimes mean the opposite of what people think they mean. It's extremely confusing. And when you take an audience into it, it's like leading them into, into quicksand. Well, definitely into a Gordian knot. The further you get in, the more you can't really get out because it's so complicated. Yeah. You get stuck in there. <laughs> the closest thing I would uh, liken it to is, remember the Zippity-Doo-Dah movies? Yeah. Unfortunately, it shows my age, but yes. Remember the Tar Baby? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what it's like. Here's the important thing to, to consider, though. Our money system, the creation and the power over money, has been privatized. Right. That was privatized basically in 1913, according to different rules than exist now. It's a moving target. started being heavily dependent on gold, uh, and that a little at a time got removed. Uh, but the main problem is privatization. You cannot expect private people to act totally in the common good. The money system should be operated for the for the common good. And when you put it into private hands, they're basically going to tend to operate it and over time more and more for those private interests. That's what has happened. And the people don't even know it. They think the government is, is in charge. I remember watching Greenspan give a short interview on a YouTube video, and he said, we do our own thing and we're not answerable to anybody. And as long as the president does what he's supposed to do, everything's fine. But basically, it was very clear. He was very upfront about it. There was no hiding it. Right out there. Right out there. Absolutely. Kim, this is another reason to call into question the ability of economists. How many economists subjected? They didn't. They went along with it for the most part. There's a few exceptions, and we, we know some of them. We we have some of them uh, address. We have a monetary reform conference every September in Chicago uh, at University Center. We used to hold it at Roosevelt. Now we shifted over to a new facility next door at University Center, and we have some of these really good economists speak there. Oh, and by the way, your your uh, listeners can see parts of their talks and some full talks at our YouTube uh, site. We just we give them away there, and they can get to the YouTube site through our through our website, which is monetary.org, uh, as I mentioned. Now, I remember watching Greenspan give testimony one time, and you may have seen this, but not many people have. At the end of the testimony, he actually said the following, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's very close. If you think, he's talking to the senators or congressmen, if you think you understood what I said, you're probably misinterpreting me. <laughs> yeah. Now, when when he did that, Kim, I had visions of a, what should have happened. A giant hand should have come out of the sky and grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and just tossed him out of out of our nation's capital. 
that represented such a such a disgraceful attitude towards our representatives, people that that are are supposed to be guarding our interests. That I thought, uh, you know, that's absolutely unacceptable. And again, you didn't hear a, a single economist bring that up. They're they're just too used to uh, accepting everything from from the Fed because they were so powerful. Remember that many people relate to the Fed as our financial lords. Yeah, yeah. And most people think the Fed is part of our government. It's not. It's ambiguous. There are there are uh, aspects of the Fed that are related to government in that, for example, the president gets to appoint the chairman every four years. But once the the board in Washington is, is uh, selected, they are in for 14 years. There's no real uh, uh, congressional control been exercised much over them yet. Now, uh, Congressman Ron Paul has done some excellent work putting forward a, a, uh, a bill for transparency, uh, that has some excellent points in it and got a lot of support for it. But now what we have to realize, we have to realize is that these are the guys that allowed the system to take all of these incredible maneuvers uh, with, with uh, uh, over-financing housing, extending uh, incredible loans to incredible people, and Ultimately, now, it brought the whole system down, and it was only the government stepping in that stopped unemployment from going from 9% to 90%, okay? Let me ask you this. I can't remember if it was Hank Paulson or the other gentleman at the Fed, but somebody in Congress asked them, what was that $700 billion, what did that go into? Yeah. Like, what did you bail out? And the answer was credit you're, to false swaps. You're only in our government. I can't tell you. <laughs> and was, so my question to you then is... It was Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, but it was somebody else with a beard. Beard. Uh, yeah, I don't think it was Hank Paulson. It was somebody else. No, uh, the person that was asked was Bernanke. That's it, Bernanke. That's right. You're right. As he's now known, the Bernanke. Exactly. Everybody has seen those. That was so profound. That was such a profound response. Yeah. We don't have to discuss that. Credit default swaps. Well, to whom? To what? What's the basis of that power? You have to ask. Is it in the Constitution? No. It was delegated essentially by by uh, the Congress. Congress means both representatives and senators when they created the Fed. And the Fed has evolved over time in a lot of different ways, and it's a very different creature today than it was in 1913. It's a moving target. And rather than look for justification for it in the law or in uh, the Constitution, look at the results. What has it done? This is a problem with economics methodology. And this especially is a problem of what's called the Austrian school of economics, which is uh, essentially the Ayn Rand, uh, uh, the people that Ayn Rand uh, followers like, and this, it's exemplified in one statement from one of its main founders, Ludwig von Mises, where Ludwig said, mere facts can never disprove my theories. <laughs> he actually said, wrote that a couple of times. 
anyway, that's described in, in uh, my book, The Lost Science of, of Money. And what we point out is that the methodology of economics in general follows that theoretical approach. They think theory is all you need. Well, theory can be important, and it's a part of learning. It's a part of going forward. But theory is always subject to the facts. If you have theories that are contradicted by facts, it's not the facts that you should ignore. It's the theory. Unfortunately, economics has gone in the other direction. They have really concentrated too much on theory. And they, at times they can be good, by the way, you know, especially in microeconomics and determining the cost of widgets and that type, you know, some what's called microeconomics, where they are horrible and dangerous is in macroeconomics. And that means, like, what should the economy be doing? What should be the purposes? What should the monetary policy be? What are the big questions involving uh these major decisions about purposes and how do we evaluate whether a policy is working or not. You have to look. You have to observe the results. Now, when you look at the results of the Federal Reserve System, it's been horrible. It's been one disaster after another. Uh, they're they're uh, directed by law to do two things only. That is, keep a stable purchasing value of the dollar and make sure that full employment is pursued. They have not done either of them. They flouted the law on both issues. How do they do it? How do they get away with it? They control the money. And that power usually can control society. Now, it's not done with guns. It's done with definitions. And when you're ready, I'll go into some of that. I just want to ask you a couple of things about greater good. That yeah. concept of the greater good. Oh, yeah. How do you respond to people who may be thinking, look, you want to bring this power back to the Congress. Yeah. But the Congress is often funded by lobbyists. We have anointed candidates, not just real ones. We have anointed candidates. We have party favorites. Congress is not what we thought it was either. Congress is not acting correctly, right? So if we bring the monetary power back to Congress... In an unstable or, let's say, a dysfunctional Congress where people are not acting in the best interest either, even though they're supposed to be representatives of the people, how do you apply the new monetary policy inside that condition? You're right. And, and there's another factor, and that is that the media is not reporting what, what some of these guys are actually doing and the harm they're doing. And they're not challenging them. And we've seen so much lying, just outright lies going on. Uh, that which further decreases our uh, our our confidence in the Congress. Well, there there are a couple of things that you have to understand. Um, the American Monetary Institute is uh, interested in monetary reform. We've studied the history enough, the history of money, and in my own case, I've had to to do what no economists do, and that is. Uh, I had to I had to examine approximately 800 monetary source documents, books, materials, of which about 400 were good enough to end up in my bibliography of the book, The Lost Science of Money. And when I go to when I go to the Congress, I usually start by 
telling, asking them, how, how can I come here to tell you what to do with the monetary system when you have the ability to bring in the most respected experts and uh, people who have supposedly studied this uh, and get information from them, and yet I come here and tell you to do something different. Why? And I, at that point, I take out the bibliography or show it on a screen very slowly, and they can go down the lists and see what was involved. And, and I tell them, I will put this bibliography up against the bibliography of any, the monetary bibliography of any of your uh, advisors. In fact, I'm comfortable putting it up against the combined bibliography of all of them. So we've done the work, and that is such a necessary precondition to do the work. Economists have not. They don't study monetary questions in any great detail. And the methodology they use prohibits them from understanding when there's a problem because they're, they're looking for, for uh, theories rather than looking at what works, what is, what is the effect of doing that stuff. And these things have reached an incredible level where, where for example, now they're talking about uh, it's necessary to, uh, uh, to do some harsh uh, cutting back of things, cut, cut the debt, cut, the, uh, uh, cut expenditures because we can't afford to spend money. These are so wrong and have been demonstrated in history to be so wrong that it's incredible that they're even being discussed. And by, by a, a president who should be looking in other directions. Do you think that a president, no matter what party they come from, has the ability to challenge the Fed? Yes. The president has a lot of power. He just has to know what to do. Now, one of the very worrisome things about our present president about a week or two after he got elected, which I thought was great. Oh, okay, we got a, a, a partially black guy in there. That's wonderful. That's progress, you know. And then he told us that he enjoyed the company of economists. And that was about a week or two after he got elected. When I heard that, I said, uh-oh, watch out. This is a, uh, he's a smart guy, but he's been taken in by the normal economic uh, jargon. And he thinks that the things that they believe have really been tested because they keep repeating them over and over again and that they work. And that's just false. It's just false. There's no basis in actual fact for much of their theory. What has happened is that economics has, has in a sense, turned into a type of religion. I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. You do? Yeah, absolutely. God, where did you learn all this? <laughs> I've been around, too, for a long time looking at what's next and what should well, be next and why. we have to get why. together when I'm in California next time. I would love it. Oh, that'd be great. The next question here is, Mohammed Yunus won the Nobel Prize for the Grameen Bank. Yeah. And that model of using credit to get businesses started and to be able to create money and industry and to help expand jobs. Now, this worked in developing nations. I'm not sure it would work in the U.S. given our present system. I, I really, uh, you'd have to make people a lot poorer first, and that may be happening. But I wanted to say that his interest of making credit a human right has a particular application for the ending of poverty. But then he went to Gordon Brown's home in England, I think it was shortly after the Nobel, and 
I guess through discussion, now wants a one-world currency. And it made me very depressed when I heard that. Here's the thing. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah, I know. I attended one of his talks here in Chicago. He's a brilliant guy. Yep. And he certainly deserves that Nobel. Um, and I, I talked to him after his talk and, and told him, you know, you're, you're trying to do this on a micro level. And the American Monetary Institute attacks this at a at a at the macro level of fixing the existing system, which is wrong. Now, as far as a world currency, not going to happen for a while. When we get to the Star Trek level, you know, maybe at that point uh, something along those lines will develop. But there's too much differences between the nations mm-hmm. in in their peoples, the education levels, all the production. Uh, Money is a creature of the law, and that, at this point in time, leaves it in national hands, always. I have another question about that part, where you say it's a creature of the law. Is it not a store of value? Do you agree with that or not agree with that? that the store of value function was added to money by Stanley Jevons in the late 1800s. Okay. No, it's not a, not a, true, not a true necessity. The store of value uh, idea in a way, um, puts forward the gold standard as uh, as something good. But money should be relatively stable, but it need not be a store of value. Aristotle gave it to us in one sentence in the 4th century B.C. Yeah, and here's what he said. He said, money, quote, this is an echo quote, money exists not by nature, but by law, unquote. So what's he said? He's, there's a number of key things that he said there. First of all, money's not something that comes out of a farm or a mine. It's an abstract legal power. And that means that in itself, it is, it is, it's a power, but not a tangible good. He distinguished between money and wealth by doing that. Now, the way the money system has been mishandled and miscontrolled all the way back to Aristotle comes down to, as I mentioned, it's a question of language and definitions, and especially wrong definitions. If you define money as wealth, for example, okay, uh, as for either perhaps gold, perhaps silver, you define money as wealth, who have you handed the control of the money system over to? The wealthy families. <laughs> Those with the wealth. Yes. They will control not only their own assets and their own stuff, their own tangible wealth, they'll control the system, which belongs in the hands of society. So this is one of the key problems that for that afflicted us for a long time when gold was considered to be wealth and uh, or, or money. Gold was wealth, but it was considered to be money, and that was a mistake. Uh, there's another mistake that was then made, and this came about uh, largely with the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. You see, money had always been credit as well. Going back to the Babylonian times, credit functioned uh, in a way like money. Uh, and with the introduction of the Federal Reserve System, credit was again uh, considered to be money. Now, who would that hand the money power over to? If you made credit money, 
credit the money the to banking the system. The banking system. You handed that. it to the banking system. Exactly. Look what they've done with it. One crisis after another. Now, mankind has advanced in any case because there are so many millions, billions of people working, creating values for life in a fairly inefficient way compared to what could be done. And the bankers have been in, in control. Now, what came into existence in uh, ancient Greece for a time was Aristotle's system, money as a creature of the law, where the government determined what the money was. Now, Aristotle uses a term that's very instructive on this. His term for money, and the word for money at that time, was nomos, N-O-M-O-S, Greek word, which refers to either law or binding custom. The term... the the term for money, I'm sorry, the term for law was nomos. The term for money was nomisma. And that showed the connection. The, the Aristotelian term for money is nomisma, based on the term for the law, which was nomos. And so what, what you had at that time was a situation where the city-states created the money. They created the nomisma. And there was a battle going on between the city-states and the oligarchy of the city-states, the old aristocracy or whatever you want, oligarchy, I think is a better word. And they preferred to use uh, relationships between the wealthy. I gave this to you, you now owe me that, a kind of credit. And so there was a battle over this. And the nomisma uh, was ultimately would be suppressed, uh, the society would degenerate into corruption. A new society, uh, Rome, let's say, would pick up the idea either by reading Aristotle or discovering it again, and they create a money system based on nomisma, which the Romans did as well and used for hundreds of years successfully. It got destroyed under the Punic Wars, and they reverted to a commodity form of money first silver and then uh, ultimately uh, to gold. And there's been a misreading of this in history, which I discussed in chapter two and three of my book, how the British numismatists considered it an advance when Rome shifted to using gold for money, whereas actually it was a, a uh, deterioration of a legally based money system. But the Brits liked it because they were using gold for money and they thought that was an advance. Anyway, we clear up that misconception in my book, in the early part of my book, and uh, then look at the various, uh, the various examples uh, of real nomisma developing in history. And America was built on it. So was money a contract in this context then? A contract? No. No, I wouldn't say it's a contract. Money... We've lost the def we've lost the concept of money. Okay, we've lost it, uh, thanks largely to the economists who always think money is credit, and they they will go so far as to say all money is credit. Now, it's it's really a short-sighted viewpoint because in within our present Federal Reserve system, the money is credit, but these guys can't conceive and don't know the history of how money 
doesn't have to be credit. Money can be money. See, a credit, a promise to pay something, can never really be money. Because what is being promised, that's got to be the money. You understand? Yes, I do. Okay, but the economists don't. They don't understand this. And so in our, in our chapter 24, the first 23 chapters of the book are historical case studies which enable the reader at their own pace to really understand what, uh, what money is. Now, in chapter 24, then, here's what, what we do. We've got the 23 chapters of background. We understand the nature of money. And I can read to you, if you like, the conclusion uh, on page 657. It takes us 657 pages to define money, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> uh, Yeah. Uh, anyway, then... Chapter 24, I wrote, wrote it on the basis, okay, that's what we learned about money. What does that mean we have to do now to fix the present system? And that's what chapter 24 does. And it presents the three crucial elements, the three absolutely necessary elements without which you don't have reform and with which you can get reform. And I can tell you what they are very quickly. Please do. In our present system, you must nationalize the Federal Reserve. Now, people have told me, don't use the word nationalize, you'll scare Americans. Americans don't have to be afraid of words so much, you know. Uh, if you don't like the word nationalize, then just say we incorporate the Federal Reserve into the U.S. Treasury, where all new money is created, not privately, but by the Treasury. But to you, is the Treasury transparent to us? Yeah, the Treasury should be more, much more transparent, and that's that's a that's a part of the of the proposal, of course. Because I think in its current function, it's definitely not. In its current function, the Treasury is just as complicitly doing the wrong thing as the Fed. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a real problem, and that has to be corrected. A, a number of things have to be done to correct the situation. It's been it's been centuries building, and it's going to be a, a bit of a little bit of time, not that long, uh, in in fixing it. So the point one: put the money power into the government where it belongs, where the Congress, where where the Constitution places it. By the way, where most people think it is now. <laughs> so this is not really radical. People think that the government controls the money system now. It doesn't. Okay, that's the first step. Now, if you just did that, it's not enough, and I'll explain to you later why it's not enough if you want to ask that. I want you to go through all three, and then I want to come back for each one because I have a question, but go ahead. That's what I thought. So that's the first step. And all these things could be described in many more words, all the subsidiary parts of it. You know, Second step, you must remove the power of the banks to create what we use for money. And what we're using is their credit that they extend when they make loans. You have to stop the banks from creating money. And one way of saying that, that people will understand, is you end the fractional reserve system. Because that's really the mechanism under which, under which it happens. Now, exactly how that works is uh, more complicated and so on. But that's number two. You no longer have the banks able to 
have their credit, which they put into the accounts, act as our money. That's the big one. Now, if you just did those two, it still wouldn't work. We know this again from history. Part three, the Congress is made aware that they are able to spend money into existence. They don't have to get it from either taxes or borrowing. Right now, they think the only way they get money is from taxing us or borrowing from the wealthy. And part three is that the government is enabled to start spending money into circulation. Where do we start? We start with the infrastructure. The engineers tell us there's 2.2 trillion needed for infrastructure over the next five years. That's about 550 uh, billion a year. That's all quite doable. The banks were creating before the crisis around seven, 800 billion a year, putting it into junk, putting it into mergers, acquisitions, which essentially created unemployment, uh, putting it into uh, incredible loans for housing, which of course had to eventually collapse. The government starts to spend money into circulation. And where do we start? The infrastructure. Everybody wants the infrastructure. There's nobody will tell you, no, we don't need infrastructure. The infrastructure is the basis of our civilization. Those are the pillars of our civilization. And the fact that the engineers tell us you need $2.2 trillion to make it safe, that shows you, that's absolute proof that the existing monetary system was either unable or unwilling to do what you had to do to have a society. What did the economists say about that? Darn little. I want to go back to the part where you talked about putting this money power into the government's hand to put money into existence to spend on needed infrastructure. I get that part. What I'm having trouble with is the part about spending money into existence by not taxing people or borrowing. How does it get out of that mode? How does that occur? Well, the government creates the money the same way the banks do now. Won't it alter the M3 number? Forget all that. Why? Get that stuff. That uh, That's part of the economic jargon. And they've long forgotten that. And they even stopped publishing it. Well, I think it's because they don't want us to know how much money is being printed. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it. But I still want you to deal with the people that may be listening that have a concern for that element of the money supply, because that's what the M3 is. First thing, they have to they have to uh, uh, understand why they have that concern. Do they have that concern because the economists and the, the whole uh, uh, economic education system told us that that was the important thing to look at? Because if those are the reasons, then you can just forget them. Well, what about inflation and deflation and the amount of money in circulation and that relationship? Yeah, no, no, that's that's important. And what, what uh, the Act will do is create a monetary authority whose job it is to keep a very careful eye on that and create uh, targets that uh, have to be fulfilled. And if they're not, they get reported on very quickly and then changes have to be made. All of this is within the act. Just a question about the detail. I'm sure that it's covered. The paradigm with people that think they understand the economy, whether they're economists or other people in finance, is that if you put a bunch of money into circulation that doesn't get used for anything, you could inflate the currency. Well, again, these are theories, okay? These are theories. And in fact, when you say people who think they know, that's the the correct 
That's the correct concept. They think they know, but look at the results of their thinking, Kim. How many of them warned what would happen here? The, the, I can tell you the economists who address our conference, they did warn and were ignored. One of them even warned in a cover story in Harper's Magazine exactly what would happen and pretty much when. That was uh, Mike Hudson did that. And he was uh, pretty much ignored until it actually came apart. So you have to be very careful with with uh, attributing great talent to those economists. So what happens when this monetary power has the ability to create money into the infinite? How does this affect trade? Oh, it does, it, it uh, doesn't have the power to create money into the infinite. The monetary authority that's created in this act... right. Uh, their their assignment is to make sure that the spending is neither inflationary or deflationary. How do they accomplish that? I mean, that's a worthy task, but how? By designing uh, targets for how much money there should be and sticking to those targets. If anything, it's probably going to go the other direction, more deflationary. Monetary reform historically, by the way, has tended to be deflationary rather than inflationary in the past. We don't want that to happen in this case, which is why we put the third point into the uh, into the act, the, the, the uh, infrastructure repair. You see, we didn't this this act didn't just come out of thin air, Kim. During the last depression. Much of this act was already put together. We, By the way, we had great economists in the last uh, couple of generations ago. And out of my alma mater, the University of Chicago, came the most brilliant plan for ending the Depression and making sure that the banking system did not collapse around us. And it was created by an economist by the name, a genius by the name of... Uh, Henry Simons, University of Chicago. Uh, it was quickly supported by other great economists, Irving Fisher from Yale, uh, Paul Douglas from the University of Chicago, uh, several others. They're, in, they're all described in Chapter uh, 24 of my book. They created what was called the Chicago Plan, named after the university. And it did two things, Kim. And it wasn't afraid of using the word nationalization. It nationalized all the Federal Reserve banks, the Federal Reserve itself, not, not the private banks. That was the first step. And the second step, it stopped the banks from creating money. What will the banks do if they can't create money? Oh, good question. Where will the banks get money to lend? What will they do? Yes, exactly. Yeah, well... First of all, you've got all the all the money that's circulating now. First, now I gave you the three points. Those are the three essential uh, things that have to be done: uh, incorporate the Fed into the Treasury, stop the banks from creating money as they do now, and spend money on infrastructure. And we include in that human infrastructure of healthcare and education. This can happen. We've solved most of most of our nation's problems for the foreseeable future. You understand? It's a big deal. 
Now, in terms of all the details involved, a lot of them are at, at our website, monetary.org, where we have uh, put a copy of the bill that Congressman Kucinich introduced on December 17th. It's all there, all 45 pages. Uh, well, the 45 pages are reduced to uh, a total of 17, not using the struck the uh, format of uh, law uh, law printing. What people need to do is just read the first two, uh, the first uh, two sec- the first section, which is four pages total, the findings of the act and the purpose of the act. Now, in terms of all the details, the monetary authority is there to see that neither inflation nor deflation will occur. And uh, that'll be, you know, that's a serious uh, thing for them to do. They have as as an advisory group, they have representatives of all of the uh, bodies which should be overseeing banking, trading, uh, the FDIC, the controller of the currency, the... the, uh, the SEC, all of the groups that have powers in this area will will form an advisory group to the monetary authority so that they should be well-equipped to move forward and do these things. And they'll be watched. In concept, I like it, but in one way it reminds me a little bit of centralizing the power of the pocketbooks in washington it's almost like putting a central banking function i know that's not what you want but it seems like that's what it is oh, it is okay yeah. no there's not a okay no, no problem with that the control over the monetary system differentiate this from the banks now because you've got all kinds of uh crazy promotions out there right now one for example to nationalize all the banks you know, that kind of stuff is idiotic. So we are not nationalized. This act does not nationalize the banks. It simply recognizes that the monetary function is a function of the national government. It's a national function. And this is one of the things that concerns me when I see kids going off, uh, wanting to do a local currency. uh, Oh, let's we got to keep our hands on it and so on. That doesn't work. It never. It doesn't solve the problems that come in as a result of having a national currency. Right now, it's national. The problem with it is not that it's national. The problem with it is under private control, being operated for private interest. I totally get that part. If you're able to structure this, and we're doing everything we can to do that, and uh, uh, to promote the common good, have some confidence that mankind can succeed in doing what's necessary. Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm not sure that many, many people trust the government anymore. And why not? Because the government doesn't always tell its citizens what's going on with our air, our water, our food, our money, and other things. This is one of the most destructive features of our present time, that government has been placed into such disrespect And in fact, there really is no government of what you're talking about. It's not the government. It's people misusing the government for their own private reasons. Now, what we do with this act is remove a great deal of that potentially private misuse of government. 
Stephen, how about the public and private partnerships that come together that synthesize activities that both public and private agencies do together? The money power has to be a governmental power, must be. Now, what the banks do is a private question, according to the regulations that are there for them. And, uh, you know, we can do so much better. I will use the term infinite now rather than in the creation of money. We can do infinitely better by good regulation and by having that ultimate power out of private hands. They don't, there's nothing that qualifies them. There's nothing in their training. There's nothing in their background. And it's clear watching what these people are doing. There's nothing in their souls that qualifies them to misuse our money system like this for their own private benefit. And what's happening? You know what's happening to the average American. They're going downhill. This at a time when you've got incredible wealth concentrating uh, for no good reason. Uh, in, in effect, it's a bit like Rush Limbaugh. The more damage you do, the more money you get. You know. What about the issue of getting trade lines, of international business, of not being able to get credit? Where are the banks going to get the money to lend? That's the question, right? That's one component of the question. What's another component? The other component is, what about trade lines? What about companies getting credit to do business? All that. It's just the op- uh, the other side of the coin of the question I gave you. Where are the banks going to get money to lend? Okay. We're not talking about credit. You see, that's that's a leftover error from the uh, what the economists do now by considering money to be credit. We're going to use money, not credit. Now, when a bank makes a loan to a company or a person, whatever, they're going to loan money. They're not going to extend just credit. Now, you can call it a credit. There's confusion in the language here that assists in this uh, misunderstanding. Okay. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. They're going to be lent money. For a moment, if... If we said that all money will be printed on paper, okay, which it won't be, it'll be uh, on computers the same as now, most of it. But if, if you said that all money will be printed on paper, when a bank makes a loan, they'll be loaning that stuff, real money. They're not loaning a promise. What they do now, they're loaning a promise to pay money. Right, I understand. You do? Yeah, I do. Great. All right. Right. So that's... That's going to be the difference. That's the fiat you're talking about. It all, it's always fiat. And I've got to digress for one sentence here. The problem is not fiat money. And for the gold bugs out there, uh, there are a few listening to public radio. The problem has never been fiat money because, as, under, as Aristotle tells us, all money is ultimately fiat. The, the highest form of money is fiat money. The real problem, deadly problem, has been the private creation of fiat money. That then will act as a tax, a private tax on all the rest of us. Because the people issuing that money get that power and they get that money finally. Uh, so that's what that's what gets changed. Now, where are the banks going to get enough money to lend? This has been brought up by economists usually because they can't consider a system outside of uh, the bank extending credit of money they don't have. You see, they just can't consider that. Well, 
that that's existed in various forms for centuries. Uh, the the savings and loan before Reagan destroyed them with his deregulation were based on on that system. They'll get the money. Here, I'll give you an example, uh, a direct example. Let's say we're going to spend uh, those trillions of dollars on infrastructure. Okay. Right. Yep. What's what's going to happen? Uh, they're going to go through the same bidding process that they now go through. The companies will bid. We'll, we'll fix that bridge according to these specs for this much. Uh, we'll fix that dam according to these specs for that much. In the same way that it's done now, bids will be sought and uh, job awards will be given, and they, these, the contractors will be paid. Okay? Now, Contractor gets paid. What does he do with, with that money? And let's, for a moment, think of it all as printed paper money handed to him. Okay, right? very good. Okay. What's he do with that money? You you know, you tell me. What does the contractor do with that money? He pays yeah. his team. He pays his people. Right. He pays for his machines. Right. He pays all the, all the costs of his business. Right. What do they do with that money that they get? They take care of their family. They pay for their costs. Right. Where does that money finally end up? There's only two places that money can finally end up, Kim. One of them is under the mattress, and the other is... In their bank accounts. In a bank. That money can be loaned out. That's real money. That can be loaned out. That is where the banks will get their money. From there, plus all the money that's circulating, we don't take any of it out of existence. So what you're talking about is not transacting with this promise to pay on paper, Right. But with what you're referring to is real money, even though it's maybe paper or an electronic form. Exactly. Now, that's the key concept that 99% of economists cannot grasp. So really, they can't loan out what's not in their accounts. Voila! <laughs> exactly. They don't have that power. They don't have that controlling power. How do they make money? They're going to do what people think they do now. This is so beautiful. Uh, they're going to pay you 2% on your deposit. And they're going to loan that out if it's in a loanable account only. They're going to loan that out and charge 3%. That's what people think banks make money on now. Right. I understand. And that's what we need. That's, that's a, a reasonable way to go. Why would the banks allow that to happen to them when they can be getting in credit default swaps? They can be doing high-frequency trading. They can take out 10 to 20 to 1% of lending dollars and play ball. All that will stop. They will lose that power and that will solve so many other problems in the process. This is not rocket science. No, I get that. You're right. It's politically difficult. But it's an integral form of their activity, their functionality at the present time and consciousness. If it didn't exist at all, things would be better. If you didn't have derivatives trading at all, as you know, uh, things would be better for the 99 point nine percent of the population and we have to start uh, understanding that this idea that they have of markets is phony it's false can i spend a minute on that yes why they've turned market worship into a religion and this came in the later days from friedman you see early on friedman supported what i'm telling you he supported the chicago plan early on and he was right when he was supporting the Chicago plan, <laughs> but wrong later. You know, he got uh, uh, an editorial every week. I think it was Newsweek he used to write for. You know, he was lionized. This affects people. Anyway, 
economics has become a kind of a uh, a a uh, clandestine religion. And here's here's the three examples I'll give you. They tell uh, the economists. They tell us, don't try to pass laws restricting our activity. Don't try to decide what we can do or not. Don't uh, don't try to pass those laws on the market. The market is much more powerful than your puny laws, and it'll simply trample on all, all the things you're trying to do. In other words, it's omnipotent. Second, don't think that regulators are the answer, that regulators can do anything uh, valid or reasonable. The market has inputs from people all over the world, from millions of people with far more knowledge than your regulators could ever have. And the term is, it's omniscient. Yeah. Okay. And the third thing they, they uh, tell us, do what the market wants, you'll be rewarded. Uh, misbehave, the market will punish you. And the term, the religious term is, it's beneficent. So what are they giving us? The economists have given us omniscience, omnipotence, beneficence. What are they really defining a market to be? What's the one word? G-O-D. They've also given us one other thing. They've given us lots, lots of collapses, the economists, lots of collapses and depressions. Stephen, the free market economy concept Sounds really good, like it's this organic thing. But when you add in all these activities of credit default swaps and derivatives and high-frequency trading and taking money and bailing out banks and all of these other inputs that are going on that are infiltrating what are called, quote, these free markets – The free markets or shorting stocks and shorting companies and you build a company and someone could create a disaster and then do a short on it and make trillions of dollars. The fact that this goes on means that there's no way we live in a free market system. Oh, no. And and the whole idea is uh, I can't say the word on the air, but it's BS. Right. So and it serves it serves the uh, predators in the society. and it serves in a way the economists who usually depend on the predators for their salaries. Uh, and, the, the, you know, when they're working for universities, the university depends on the predators for donations for chairs. We're in a terrible system, but we recognize it. And we also have the confidence in the human race that we can fix these things. We know what to do. We Now we, we're at the point where we have to do them. And now this brings me to a crucial thing for you to understand. We only get this chance to fix things when? Now. Because (laughs) Because we're in a collapse. That's right. We're we're already in it. It's only in a collapse that there's a possibility to to fix this because these creatures are so powerful. So what do you think of people who will misuse the collapse to try to pass petty little nothing things that reform nothing. That's what you have to understand, and that will allow you to understand my attitude towards certain things. When people are out there promoting something that doesn't fix anything, such as state banking, which 
would only create more supporters, government supporters, for what's called fractional reserve banking, that any true monetary reformer knows the problem is fractional reserve banking has to be eliminated. So I get I can be very harsh when I see people proposing nonsense at this crucial time, especially if I have reason to believe that they know better. Some of them don't. But anyway, I just want, as an aside, I wanted to say that. Where do you stand with regard to the requirement for collateralization in the entire credit system? Okay. First of all, it's going to be a money system, not a credit system. Right. I get that. It's hard to get these words out of our language. Okay. But with the collateralization of loans. I, we, we don't attempt to alter uh, what could be called sound backing practice. We don't attempt to alter that. Now, that others ha- are doing that or trying to do that. That's not a part of our act. We, what we think should happen is that the, the kind of laws that were passed, for example, against discrimination against blacks, those are good things. And uh, uh, from that point of view, uh, we think that it's got to be, uh, any collateralization has to be completely reasonable and legal and, and decent. You know, but we can understand how banking practice could require that, and we're not out to change that. There may be there may be uh, good, sound reforms that are necessary in that way, but that then gets into microeconomics, and we are at the macro level. We want the money system itself not to have built-in class warfare as it does now. Why are you able to have the confidence you do that if you put the Federal Reserve functionality inside the government that this will work and not be abused? Why are you so confident about oh, that? Well, I, I can give you that in just a sentence or two. We're, we don't think there's any way we can do worse than what the private bankers have done. <laughs> and that gives you a kind of confidence. In other words, the the, uh, the what's that term from the Hippocratic Oath? Do no damage. Right. We're v- absolutely certain that whatever, however it turns out, and we're here to make it turn out as good as possible, and we're confident in humanity that that can be done, uh, we know we're not going to do any damage. And that gives you all the confidence you really need. Even the funding of wars that shouldn't be in place, doesn't that worry you to have the ability to create money? That's an excellent point. And what you have to understand is that our act makes it less likely to to, uh, have war. Tell me why. Explain it. You can guess why. I'm going to let you guess. No, I want to know from you. I don't know. Okay. Other than that, most of the focus of the ability to generate money would be going toward critical infrastructure type projects. Here, here's why we reduce the potential for warfare. Let's say unnecessary warfare. I'm not going to get into actual real warfare, you know, which may happen from time to time in, in societies. One of the motives for warfare is financial. Right. It's not just the military-industrial complex, which Eisenhower so wisely warned us about. It's in the debt. If you can force the government into debt, the people who are in a position to buy that debt, the most of it, the very wealthy, 
they have a built-in interest in the government going into debt because they earn money on it. Got it. They like government debt. Whatever they say, forget it. They love government debt because over time they can get into those situations of uh, uh, forever increasing uh, assets uh, and the government doesn't go out. I mean, that debt gets paid unless the government loses a war. So we remove that through our act. We remove the, because the the debt gets paid off in our act. uh, And therefore, whatever else we've done, again, do no damage, whatever else we've done, we've removed one of the motives for warfare, which is to create government debt. Now, that's a big plus. That is a big plus. Big, big plus. We've got pluses everywhere. We even limit, believe it or not, when you read the details, you'll see we limit compound interest in this act. Now, these are, these are terrible problems that have, have afflicted humanity, not just for centuries, for millennia. We know better now. We do know better. And it's time that we start to act. And why I'm confident that this is going to be possible, the various people in control, they're not the Paulsons and and those characters who are reaping a few hundred million. The, The people that are really powerful, they have to worry about those weapons that are out there. The same kind of characters controlling the secular world, they're, they're in charge of the weapons. Now, we, we know what happens with a nuclear winter. Nobody escapes. You know. So I'm, I'm confident that, uh, you know, as Einstein said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. <laughs> I'm confident that uh, we're not just some joke here. I'm confident that we as a people, have a, as a species, have a greater purpose. And we don't even know yet. We're too involved with all this nonsense of how are, how are people going to get fed and how are, uh, uh, you know, when, when we have the ability to do those things. We're too tied up in crazy political arguments to even know what our true destiny is that we as a species will be working towards. This is a minor, minor thing, this money system. We we can clear it up. We have to do it now. We should do it now. The last question is, in the Congress, there are people that have been funded by lobbyists. How do you settle this if you're putting the Fed power inside of Congress? We we don't have any lobbyists. <laughs> I know you don't. We're just, we're just approaching uh, people with the truth. That's my book, The Lost Science of Money which people can get at a discount at our website, the website, monetary.org. And uh, you can also get the free iPods and hear all these things there, and lots of free articles there, beautiful stuff there that that we've given over the years. We're confident that we're going to win because, first of all, we're right. Secondly, America has great potential for goodness, which most of the people believe in. I agree with Even you. though it doesn't always pan out that way. You know what I mean. Yes, I do. So we've got that, and uh, we have to keep that. And the Rush Limbaugh's, the Becks, all those creatures that public radio is always talking about, that's the only place I hear about them. 
all these creatures that are doing their utmost to get us to hate our government, well, you know, that game is over. That game is over. They're, they're only aiming at the lowest. And uh, after we saw this horrible shooting in, uh, in Arizona, and we saw the reaction of those same people, they're just trying to keep the worst element of their audience. I totally understand what you're saying, and I agree with you. But there are still a large amount of people that have very good sound reason to be suspect with regard to government activities. And that's okay to, sure, to, be, okay. to be, you, in, be you know, careful. you have and to be we mindful. want to be careful. And so this, this law is going to have all sorts of safeguards in it. You're seeing there on the website the 14-page uh, the, the version. Uh, there's, you know, as it develops and people make suggestions and, wouldn't this be a good idea? Wouldn't that? We're open to those. Not that it's important that we are. I'm sure the congressman is open to those too. And uh, you know, this is an open. This is an open process. What we're not open to, what I'm not open to, is disinformation. I just, I have no con. I, I have no patience with disinformation. And. Uh, in, re in connection with that, I have no confidence in the people who are telling us, oh, you'll never get it. Oh, you can never do it. Oh, it'll never happen. And then they go and promote something even even more difficult. Uh, I've got no... no. Uh, you, you know who Sun Tzu was, right? Yes, absolutely. The Art of War. Okay. You remember he tells everybody, here's the best way to win against an opponent. Remember? Yes. You remember what it was? That's what the whole book's about. Yes. Well, it's some, it, it comes down to one thing. <laughs> Convince your opponent that they can't win. Yes, exactly. And that's what's going on in our country in a big, big way, that uh, uh, these creatures who, who are affecting public psychology are working and convincing everybody, oh, it can't work, it, you can't win. Whenever, you, whenever I hear that, I think... Here's another one. That's very astute. I agree with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's I want to the see you when I get to California. I'll take you to lunch if you like. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Stephen Zarlinga, the co-founder of the American Monetary Institute and the author of The Lost Science of Money, The Mythology of Money, The Story of Power. Thank you so much for hey, your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. My pleasure. Thank you. We My need pleasure. help like this. My pleasure.